Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. A lot of simplistic people said, oh, we don't have to worry about this because it's only the gays and the Haitians who are getting this. Two demographics who were seen as utterly dispensable in white upper-class America, opportunities to help were pushed down because of bigotry, because of ignorance, because of homophobia, because of racism, because of capitalism, all the isms that are also exacerbating COVID-19. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. It's too early to tell about the impact COVID will have on the world. It could be under control in a few months, or it could become something unimaginable. But the impact of AIDS was huge, and some people are suggesting that what we're feeling now in the early days of the COVID outbreak must be similar to how it felt at the beginning of the AIDS crisis. But there were some crucial differences. In a commentary in the April 2020 edition of Outcasting Overtime, Outcaster Chris said, Imagine how much lower the number of people lost to AIDS might have been if people hadn't hated gay men and had instead recognized AIDS as a worldwide health crisis right from the beginning. And imagine how you, today, dealing with this new coronavirus, would be panicking if COVID were raging in your community, but there was no effective public response. Imagine this sickness and death becoming pervasive among your own friends and family, and asking, pleading, screaming for help, but no one listens. No one really cares about the infected, and the government sits on money that should be released for developing a vaccine, or cure, or for caring for those who are sick. Imagine the rage and grief you'd feel as your friends were getting sick and dying, and the rest of the world was ignoring the whole thing. Joining us now to help us understand and not just imagine is Jay Blotcher. Jay is a veteran journalist and activist. He arrived in New York City in 1982. He began writing for the New York Native, the leading gay newspaper at the time, and then became associate producer of Our Time, a weekly TV show about LGBT life in New York City, hosted by the activist and historian Vito Russo. Jay joined Act Up New York in 1987, the year the group was founded. He took part in key demonstrations, like the FDA protest in 1988, Stop the Church in 1989, and the demonstration at the National Institutes of Health in 1990. He served as the head of ACT UP's media committee, taking the helm from Michelangelo Signorelli. Most recently, Jay was the editor of Rainbow Warrior, My Life in Color, the memoir of Gilbert Baker, creator of the Rainbow Flag. Jay is also a member of the Gilbert Baker Foundation and co-founded Public Impact Media Consultants, a PR firm for progressive groups and individuals. Welcome to Outcasting, Jay. Thank you very much. So tell us a bit about how gay identities evolved in the dozen years between Stonewall and the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Um, I didn't come out formally until 1978, and that was uh, nine years after Stonewall. But I can tell you that I grew up in a country where the hip people, the cool people, were beginning to recognize LGBT people 
mostly through fashion and through film and through TV, there was a greater awareness of pushing the envelope in the arts and LGBT people were taking their rightful place and it was a hip thing finally to be LGBT after generations of oppression and uh, legal problems at one point just being gay or, or lesbian or acting upon it could get you thrown in jail or get you sent to a psychiatrist or psychotherapist who would recommend electroshock therapy for you. So we went from a very oppressive time to a time where the window was opening onto greater awareness and greater sensitivity. The LGBT community was in the midst of mainstreaming of a real era of acceptance when AIDS stepped in. Now, I have to acknowledge also that there were adversaries because in 1977, Anita Bryant, who was a singer and a religious person, activated a legislative protest against LGBT people in Dade County, Florida, and was pushing for a bill that would undermine the legal rights of LGBT people. Her assertion was that gays and lesbians were out to recruit children. I and mean, this was only 1977, and yet it sounds like something from puritanical days. And she did get this law to pass in Dade County, Florida, and it emboldened other homophobes across the country. So while we were making advancements in various places, there was also this backlash because for the first time, LGBT people were being upfront and open and refusing to stay in the closet. So, of course, some of the major homophobes, especially within the religious community, were pushing back. Now, you mentioned Anita Bryant and the political developments that revolved around her and her anti-gay protests. But around the same time, we also saw the election of Harvey Milk in San Francisco. How did this election and the way that LGBT people were able to find their way into the government feel to the gay community? LGBT people were no longer hiding in the shadows. They were taking back their civil rights as Americans. They were refusing to be second-class citizens. You know, a lot of people, for them, it was very easy to rail against LGBT people because they didn't really know anybody. So they could demonize them because there were no examples of LGBT people in their community. But these people were standing up and saying, enough of this libel, enough of these recriminations, enough of these lies that were being used to leverage having our legal rights taken away from us. And in California, there was um, a legislative attempt. It was called the Briggs Initiative. And that would have allowed anybody who was openly gay in schools to lose their jobs. It would have just devastated the gay community. And this time, gay and lesbian people did not sit down, did not just let homophobes steamroll over them. And uh, they fought. They went all over the state, including Harvey Milk. He spoke eloquently in all these uh, gymnasiums and schools around California saying, 
the people who are behind the Briggs Initiative, you think they're going to stop at dismantling the rights of gays and lesbians? Believe you me, they're going to continue and they're going to determine who has rights and who doesn't. And, you know, thanks to Harvey's relentless appearances and to his common sense and the way that he spoke to people from the heart, Californians were able to defeat the Briggs Initiative. But soon after that, Harvey Milk was assassinated. The fact is that we had such high hopes, and this man was a leading light in the LGBT community, but the homophobes knew that he was dangerous. And like RFK and like MLK and like anybody trying to bring goodness and equality to this country, Harvey Milk was shot down. Now, you've talked about a lot of the activism that was going on during this time period, but a lot of it tended to be mainly in larger cities. Why was that? Larger cities were more cosmopolitan, and they were places where LGBT people could go. They could escape from their provincial small towns and come to large cities where they would be accepted, and there was a greater level of uh, openness and tolerance and sophistication. But what did that mean? That meant that if you went to these small towns, either the gays and lesbians were living in the closet or they had all left in order to have their rights in the larger cities. So therefore, you had almost zero consciousness about gays and lesbians in the smaller places. And therefore, you had almost zero political action there as well. Nobody wanted to be a city target and make a stand for gay and lesbian rights when it could mean their safety and, in some cases, their lives. And so, therefore, you find the groundswell of advancements in LGBT civil rights to be happening mostly in these larger cosmopolitan cities that have become gay meccas, San Francisco and L.A. and New York Boston as well had a very vibrant LGBT political movement. So while these cities were centers of political activism and change, it was also in these places that people began to come down with strange illnesses and started dying. How did you first become aware of what was happening? Um, I was in college and I was in um, a friend's apartment on Beacon Hill helping him paint and there were newspapers scattered around. And sure enough, there was a copy, you know, some pages from the New York Times. And I happened to read that it's, you know, said a uh, a strange cancer has been seen in homosexuals using time, New York Times speak. And that was the first thing that I saw. That was the shot heard around the world, the classic article by Dr. Lawrence Altman that first got out there. Now, there had been some coverage in the, uh, the the gay media up until then, but this was the first mainstream media acknowledgement of it. Unfortunately, the Times did not energetically follow the epidemic after that, and in fact, in many ways, they fell down on the job for many years until they finally, towards the late 80s, when you know it was a very severe situation, did they finally commit more reportorial resources to uh, writing about the epidemic. But they do have that distinction of having been the first 
arguably the first mainstream media outlet to uh, alert people to the epidemic. But at some point, a pattern emerged, and it became clear that an AIDS diagnosis was essentially a death sentence for many people. How did word of what was happening with this strange disease spread within the community? You know, if you talk to people who lived in New York in the very, like, the late 70s and early 80s, there were already cases raging. People already knew people who were sick. It fell upon the city so quickly, people would tell each other what was going on, and more and more you realize that something momentous and very, very lethal was happening. There were small community organizations doing everything that they could, but a lot of doctors in the mainstream either didn't want to deal with gay patients or the patients weren't even out to their doctors. And so if they had something that they felt was sexually transmitted or they had some mystery illness, they did not feel comfortable going to their doctors because that would be tantamount to coming out and they didn't want to come out. So the bigotry, the prejudice that poisoned America also poisoned the medical system so that even in the early days, people who had the beginnings of AIDS, in which they didn't even know what it was, were reluctant to even go to their doctors and be open about what was going on, because then the doctor would say, well, how do you think this happened? You know, the person would have to say, well, I'm a man who has sex with other men, and they didn't want to do that. They had jobs, they had careers, they had livelihoods that could be crushed in a moment if they came out. And so that was one of the major problems of the early days of the epidemic. You had doctors who weren't interested, and you had people who were reluctant to be forthcoming about what was going on. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. As the COVID-19 pandemic unfolds around the world, some people have said, this is what it must have felt like at the onset of AIDS. Our guest is Jay Blotcher, a longtime activist who was involved in the struggle against AIDS in New York City. So as you've said, Jay, in the early years of the outbreak in the United States, AIDS was associated mostly with gay men. But what other groups were involved initially, and when was that noticed? Well, you know, the fact that AIDS was so insidious that it struck people who were disempowered. A virus doesn't distinguish But because of various routes of transmission, AIDS was disproportionately affecting poor people, people of color, sex workers, IV drug users, and men who had sex with men. All these people, all these groups were arguably demeaned, diminished, and reviled groups in the United States. So they already didn't have the political clout that they needed. You could argue that they did not have that cohesion, that sense of solidarity to work together. A lot of them were poor, and all these were horrible situations that only exacerbated the spread of HIV and the lack of services that these people had. Initially, There were many cases happening in the Haitian community. Nobody could explain that either. And so 
a lot of simplistic people said, oh, we don't have to worry about this because it's only the gays and the Haitians who are getting this. Two groups, two demographics who were seen as utterly dispensable in white upper class America, which had the lion's share of the power, which had the lion's share of the medical and monetary resources. They were not moved to help these people. Now, I'm being extremely general with this. Of course, there were people who were helping, but there was not widespread assistance at the beginning at all. People were not only fighting illness, but they were fighting stigma. And in many cases, the stigma would overcome any help. You know, people didn't want to be forthcoming about having whatever this new illness was initially, uh, to give you some perspective on it, it was uh, called gay-related immunodeficiency disease, GRID. So people were already presuming that only gay people were getting it. They had no idea that the cases were beginning to mount in Africa. In the United States, people had blinkers on, and they were looking at who was getting it, deciding, well, they aren't people who we liked anyway, so, okay, let's just ignore it and ignore them. You know, and that's where you talk about genocide. People think that that is uh, hyperbole, but there were medical people and political people who knew what was happening with this epidemic, and one, they didn't want to do anything because they didn't care, Or two, if they showed any compassion towards the people who were getting it, they felt that the balance of their constituents, their voters, would be angry that they were helping these people who were lesser Americans. And so you just see all these opportunities to help were pushed back and pushed down because of bigotry because of ignorance, because of homophobia, because of racism, because of capitalism, all the isms that we're still laboring under now, all the isms that are also exacerbating uh, COVID-19. So there was this panic in the gay community and in the Haitian community, as you said, and the intravenous drug community and all these other disenfranchised groups, but at the same time, a lack of public urgency among the American public. What did this feel like? Well, we had, you know, Ronald Reagan and George Bush in the White House, and they came in on a an agenda to take care of the wealthy and the privileged, and they never veered from that. And so the people who were getting AIDS were not part of their agenda, and they knew that, and they also knew that if they even risked doing anything about it, they would have uh, fury from their constituents. Now, a president is supposed to help all Americans, but during the Reagan-Bush era, that was not the case. Reagan was very adamant about who he wanted to help and who he wanted to ignore and hope that they went away. And those of us in the uh, LGBT community and in the AIDS community realized that we were being dumped, jettisoned, ignored. 
just left to die. And for that reason, our community buckled down and began creating organizations to help each other because we realized that help was not forthcoming from the United States, that we were being abandoned. I think it was like 1983 that we finally were able to identify the virus. So we didn't know up until then the roots of transmission, what was happening, till we finally found out that it was a virus, that it was being sexually transmitted, because before then, people thought it was just in the air, that if you were near somebody with AIDS, you would catch AIDS as you would the common cold. There was so much misinformation, and that misinformation fueled the ignorance and the hatred and the homophobia and the racism. You know, and it also fueled people ignoring people with AIDS so that people were in hospital hallways. You know, if they were lucky enough to get their own hospital beds, the nurses or the orderlies would not even bring the food into their rooms. They'd be afraid that they could catch it just by being in the room with them. So the early years were really horrific, really cruel and people died shunned and lonely and in a pariah status. And, um, you know, I would urge somebody to, you know, watch the uh, TV, mini TV movie, The Normal Heart, to learn what that was like, a recreation of what those early days were where gay men were reviled and forgotten and uh, just left to die by the medical system. I mean, certainly people in New York, medical people in New York were trying to save people. But in other parts of the country where you didn't have that enlightenment and you didn't have that compassion, it was pretty hard. People were getting HIV who hadn't even come out yet. And so when you got HIV, people presumed that you were gay. And so HIV was this horrific outing mechanism. People who were in the closet and living their lives under the radar suddenly were coming down with HIV because of their sexual orientation. And of course, you have these people who are always on the down low, who had a wife and kids at home and were going out every now and then for sexual uh, assignations on the sly. And now these people were getting HIV and HIV was this big revelatory thing. It was unmasking these people who were in the closet in the most horrendous, invasive way and causing great panic and ruining lives. And so the stigma continued. And as I said before, we were on the precipice of mainstream acceptance in the late 70s. Gay people were suddenly cool and hip and more accepted. Well, the epidemic just destroyed all that. The little bit of advancement that we had made in terms of uh, legal matters, in terms of our standing in social world, in the arts, was all being torn apart, shredded, and um, pulled back. Now, you touched on the way that the AIDS crisis affected the public perception of the gay community. But how did it affect the way that gay people saw themselves? Well, if you were a gay person who wasn't particularly happy with the way life was 
and the fact is, you know, if you had a certain amount of self-loathing that had been internalized from a homophobic community, well, how would you feel suddenly you have an illness that ostensibly came because of your sexuality? It would give people who didn't have a very strong sense of self-esteem a real wake-up call. You know, the self-loathing would be amped up tenfold. And there were people who thought, why didn't I try to go straight? You know, look what happened now. Now I'm going to die because I'm gay. Just a small cadre of gay people who had really strong self-esteem and a, a great sense of self were willing to fight back, were willing to start an organization called Gay Men's Health Crisis, which I believe was the first community organization in the United States, based in New York, to address AIDS. And it was named Gay Men's Health Crisis because that's exactly what we were living through. With any epidemic, it brings out the best people and it brings out the worst in people. It brings out the best in some governments, it brings out the worst, but everybody is touched in some way. And I'm specifically grateful for people like Larry Kramer and the men and women who founded Gay Men's Health Crisis in uh, 82 and uh, made it a model for AIDS organizations around the country that would help people and address the crisis with compassion, not with bigotry, not with divisive behavior and policies. You know, the fact is that nobody had ever seen AIDS before. And so people with AIDS, even though they were Americans, they did not have the rights that everyone else has. Because it was seen as a health crisis, people said, well, people with AIDS are dangerous and they're dangerous to everybody else. Therefore, if you were a landlord and you heard that your tenant had HIV, you could throw him out and you say, well, he has HIV, he's dangerous. Uh, if you were a, a manager of a company and you found out that somebody had HIV in your office, you would be justified legally in making them lose their job. People with AIDS had no rights whatsoever. That only came with the Americans with Disability Act, uh, which I think was established in 1990. So from the beginning of the epidemic in 81 till 1990, anybody with AIDS had zero rights as an American. You know, so it was a very horrible time for even the strongest type of person. And if you were a person who didn't have a steel backbone or a, a strong spine or, or the willingness or the energy to fight back, if you were sick with HIV, you're, you're fighting the disease, but you're also fighting the widespread institutionalized homophobia of the United States. How do you fight that while you're fighting for your life as well? That's all the time we have for now. We'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Amelie, Sarah 1, Sarah 2, Chris, Lil, Thorne, Justin, Brian, and me, Lucas. 
Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.